coming up on THC Tutors. So I like to try and never have oscillating fans. That's definitely something that is pretty important. If your goal is to produce flour for you to smoke and you can only do so in a certain amount of space or with a specific amount of plants, then providing more light will produce more medicine. Even for myself, I find that I need to take a step back and slow down and not try and think about its big picture sometimes, because really, if you look at the plants, they're going to tell you what they need. Hello and welcome to THC Tutors. Today, I'm doing another guest talk. We got Nick Wolf on here one more time. I don't know. This is this one's going to be a good one. I'm very excited. How are you doing today, Nick? Doing pretty good, Noah. How about yourself? I've had a great day. It's really sunny here up north, and I think a lot of people are outside. And after we film this, I'm probably just going to go chill outside too because it's a beautiful day and one of the only last, I would say, really hot days, like lake days that you can get. <clears throat> yeah, awesome. Let's just get straight into this, man. I got a lot of questions lined up. These ones are from forum posts and just being amongst my friends. And Jocko and I had someone we were brainstorming the other night. So let's just get straight into it. Cool. So the first one that I want to get into, because this is going to pertain to a lot of the viewers, and I think it's going to hook a lot of them in, is share some of your best tips over time that, because two or three people have given us a DM just specifically about more about that mom tent configuration that you were talking about. And we want to know, do you have any other tips for optimizing for smaller areas that you could share with the viewers? Sure. If you're optimizing for a small space, I'd say you're going to really want to make sure that you have adequate lighting, but not overdo it. A lot of the heat output for that space would come from the lights. And if it's too small, you can only really exchange so much air. And depending on how you're conditioning that air, either within or without or outside of the tent, you're going to need to keep that in mind for how much heat you're producing. I would say aim for lower lighting if you can and keep the plants as close to the lights as possible without them being overlit and causing issues in that regard. Keeping a, a good amount of light on them is going to be really important for adequate growth. And then you can lower the light intensity if you want to slow down some growth. You will get some stretching, but it'll be slower and you can always prune that back. So another one right there would be keep up on your pruning, keep up on your canopy maintenance, make sure that you don't have too much canopy in there because that's going to cause increase in humidity and that's going to make for some possible mold conditions to occur. Um, I was, yeah, I was going to say, I like the whole thing with lighting. Do you agree on indoors? Cause I think this is something I've been finding over time in a two by four is as they, they used to say when I was beginning growing is like a military topped canopy where it's just the top bud and nothing below that. Is that uh, something you would agree with in a very small space as well? In terms of for flowering the plant? Yeah, for flat. If you're going in a two by four and a two by two, would you probably get more success with maybe one layer instead of going for depth? I guess a lot of people just go for depth and maybe it kills the quality and the yield of those top like grade A buds. Yeah, I guess it, it really does depend on the cultivar that you're growing. Cause if it's going to be like a really stretchy one, then yeah, maybe what you want to do is keep it started flowering early. And then as it stretches, pull those branches down under a scrog net to create an even scrog canopy. 
But if it doesn't stretch a lot, then maybe you need to veg it for a while until it fills out that canopy and then flip it and prune everything low so that it just has nice little spears that shoot up a little bit. But it really just depends on which plant you're growing. Yeah, I like that you said the the thing about what cultivar, very cultivar specific. I like that a lot. And then it also depends on your style of growing. If you're going to be growing in hydroponics, then you need to consider that you're going to have a much more significant stretch in certain cases than you would over, say, something in a soil or a modified growing mix based like living soil situation. You may not get as much stretch, but it really just depends on like your watering practices and your environmental conditions. But I've seen plants in like cocoa stretch. Like I have a, I have some that I'm testing right now from a recent breeding project, which that are already at three times their height from when I flipped them, but they're only on day like 15 of flowers. So I'm hoping that they slow down here. It looks like they will slow down uh, right around day 21, but they surprised me. And that kind of goes into a different question. How important is stacking during Cause a lot of people are in this, it's a buzzword around is that stretching and then you stack on top of each other and the better you can stack the thicker or <clears throat> the more yield you're going to have. But also one thing that I point to is if you stack too heavy, you might drive into like moldy conditions cause you're going to, your buds are just going to be way too big. For sure. A lot of that is environmental specific. Like you were saying in a really small space, like if somebody had a really limited growth space, then yeah, maybe this whole idea of stacking, which is just like the vertical opposite of a scrog net. So you're still using the same amount of bud sites in a scrog net. You're just using one plant to fill it up versus if you're stacking that one and you're like building that, that vertical canopy depth, then you're going to have like multiple plants or you're going to fill the canopy out ahead of time and then flip it to flowers so that it bolts up through and creates that vertical depth. And so it really just, but it depends on how much like air exchange you can create in that small environment. Uh, and if, again, like if you're conditioning the air, so if you have dehumidification and proper airflow, so both like uh, when I think airflow, if it's in a, a non CO2 enriched environment, then you're going to want exchange as well as circulation exchange being, you're going to pull air in from an outside environment so that it has fresh CO2 in it. And Mm -hmm. then it takes the depleted air that has the CO2 been reduced due to the plant taking it up, be pulled out and evacuated from the tent. I agree. If you don't have CO2 enrichment, you'll have exchange there. And then circulation is important too, because you need to make sure that the micro environment, environmental conditions that are being created around the leaves due to transpiration is being whisked away by adequate airflow and you, it doesn't need to be to the point where the leaves are actually flipping and flopping in the breeze. You need to just have a light rustling through the entire canopy. So if you just see it in one spot, like on the top or one spot on the bottom, or it's in one corner, it's, that's not going to be adequate. So that's what circulation helps with. So what I like to do for that is I like to, if it's in a small environment, you need to follow the path of the air. Let's say that you have an environment where you're exchanging cold air into the tent or the grow space. Then I like to pull that into the top of the tent because I think of the thermodynamics of it. So cold air sinks, hot air rises, right? So I like to put the cold air in at the top of the tent and have airflow in terms of circulation at the top of the tent. So it mixes that cold air with the hot 
or the heat being produced by the lights, then mm -hmm. that combinate, then that mixture of air gets pulled down through the tent can and through the canopy. And so then I'll have another, so I'll have fans at the top creating like a cyclone, if you will. So it'll pull air in the direction that it's coming into the tent from and push it around in a circle. And then I'll have another fan at the bottom of the tent going in the same direction. If you think of it as if it's going clockwise or counterclockwise in the space, you have the fan at the bottom facing in the same direction. So I it'll keep pulling that air through in that same way. And then you have your fan that pulls or your inline fan that pulls air out at the bottom of the exhaust. Tent. Yeah. So I think you just defined exactly what <clears throat> laminar flow in a tent is like exactly what like optimal because right. I think keeping it, I'm not personally, I'm not a big fan of oscillating fans. And the oh, reason absolutely. is if I like to keep similar direction of airflow and I don't know, it makes it a lot easier for me in terms of, like you said, you do want a good amount of airflow, but when you're not dealing with CO2 and you're not dealing with a really high PPFD, you can go back, take a step back with the airflow in terms of some people that are running CO2 and running really high light, they need to run like at least one and 1.7 meters per second or however that's measured through the canopy just to have a proper optimal leaf temperature. And I think that's crazy where me, I can't even hit that even if I wanted to right now. Yeah. I feel like if it's, if you're in the tent or in a enclosed environment where you aren't enriching with CO2, you just have to try and exchange that air as quickly as possible, but it has to be in line with other environmental parameters. So if like you're exchanging sure. your air too fast and dumping a bunch of humidity, but you're in early or late veg or early flower, then you're going to be putting yourself possibly in non-optimal conditions where you're going to have too high of a VPD. And that's going to cause either excess transpiration or lack of transpiration due to stomatal close closure. So that could also limit growth in, in that sense. So I like to try and never have oscillating fans. That's definitely something <clears throat> that is pretty important. Like not only just so like oscillating fans create buffeting zones. And so you'll have wind that clashes against itself, basically. So if you like, if it bounces off of one surface, and then the fan oscillates to another spot where that air, then that current sort of is Bounces directed again. towards, then it create, it'll hit itself and it'll create like pockets of more intense air current and less intense Ooh, air wow. current versus if you keep your fans in one stable position and you just have it moving with the flow of the intake and down through the canopy, then through the exhaust, you'll have this continuous flow of air. That's it. You'll see a lot less of big gusty movement of plants and you'll see more just like tickling of leaves. And that's what you're, yes. what you want to look for. I like that. Yeah. That I've never even heard that be stated that way with the clashing of air. And I haven't thought about that, but you're 100% right. When I did use oscillating fans, you notice that, and especially opposite opposing corners. That would be the worst because like, mm -hmm. like you said, it, it makes so much sense now that I'm thinking about it, exactly what you said. But sometimes even the most, I don't know, things with maybe a more simpler explanation, somebody has to tell you and you're like, whoa, like what? That's what was happening the whole time. If you showed me that in water instead of air, then I, I would probably understand more. But air is invisible, right? So it's like you're going based off of the principles of, of aerodynamics, exactly what you're talking about also Definitely. if you think about 
the plant itself, like the cannabis plant is very resilient. So in, in nature, if you're growing outdoors, it'll grow in fields with extreme wind gusts, as long as it's trellised or supported correctly. And that's got typically, if that happens, you're going to have all your stomatal apertures closed and that's going to cause transpiration reduction so that you're going to like, if you, but the plant seems to thrive in outdoor conditions, even if it has heavy winds. And so in indoor conditions, the way that's represented is through steady airflow. So in, even in heavy winds in an outdoor setting, it's not typically going to be big blustering sort of gusts of wind that come back and forth in different directions. It's usually in a Mm. a steady direction that picks up speed and it over time and then slows down over time. So it's not uh, one big thing. And sometimes it is that, but that like in and of itself is just going to cause damage. And and that's a completely different thing. And that's what is happening in a tent. If you get like these uh, buffeted zones. That's where you get wind damage, where you see leaves that are browning or dry. dry yeah. And you're like, why is this area so dry and this area not? And why is my humidity off? And it's parts of the tent are being more heavily buffeted by this wind and others are not. And so parts are able to produce a lot more humidity through their transpiration and other parts aren't. And so you're getting humidity pockets and then those are getting moved around the tent and causing dips and swings in your humidity. And then you have mold, like there's spores everywhere, unless you have some sort of HEPA filter in your environment or other scrubbing mechanism. Yeah. Then you're going to have mold there. So you can have sporulation events occur with high and low dips in your humidity. And like parts of that can be from just like the wind flow, if it's not continuous. And that's exactly like making, I was going to say making microclimates in microclimates, right? <laughs> like yeah. you're already in something super small and you're literally just continuing to make small adjustments in the small box that you already have. And that kind of carries me into the next thing. And I don't know how close you are to this, but this was a, a question that Giacomo had when we were brainstorming and it was how important is the designing of a room? And from somebody like you, who's worked in multiple facilities, Have you noticed different designs? And this is more definitely a commercially based commercial question. How important is it when, if every room is designed the same or if a room is designed better, like in these videos we see like growers house and stuff, they say the Ferrari of grow rooms, but that doesn't make sense to a lot of people. So explain further. It's like with any technology that's got a range of how much items can cost, like with computers, right? You can build a sweet ass gaming computer and spend $25,000-$30,000 if you want, or you, want to, you yeah. can create a functional one for probably a little less than $1,000 that's still great. Think the same with a grow room, right? You can do the same thing. You can go cheap on it and make it work, or you can spend a lot of money on it and make it work better. But it's also like about the grower and how they view the problem at hand. But in terms of if I've seen like efficient, is there an efficient way to set up an environment? Absolutely. You definitely need proper airflow. You need proper dehumidification. You need proper humidification. You need proper heating and cooling. It Mm -hmm. can't just be one or the other. You need proper lighting, proper CO2 enrichment, and then all the cultivation practices that come along with it. Then you just need all the healthy habits of 
keeping your canopy healthy, keeping your plants healthy, keeping your roots healthy and, and so forth. Definitely. So onto that, what would you say is breaking it down like a Ferrari? What's the engine of the grow room? Is it, there's a big kind of a big argument online. Is it the lights or is it the AC? Cause there's a huge debate right now. I know with reheat, a power dehumidifiers are taking. So what, in your opinion, what is the engine uh, of the grow room? That's almost a trick question because you can't necessarily have a Ferrari if you don't have the aerodynamics of the body with the engine mm -hmm. that also is kick-ass with the drive train that's kick-ass. Like all those things come together to create the car. It's not just one part that is the best part. That's dichotomous thinking. And if we look at a grow room, then you have the, so obviously you need the lights because the photons are what drive the plant in terms of the more or less that you have of those, the more or less of everything else you're going to need. If you have in a super high photon flux over a thousand, you're going to need CO2 enrichment to maximize that space. And then with CO2 yeah. enrichment, you're going to need heating and cooling capacity to make sure that you're optimizing temperatures for transpiration. And then with that, you're going to need dehumidification to make sure that you're keeping the humidity and the vapor pressure deficit at a correct level, make sure that the stomatas are not having an issue of opening or closing or maintaining open so that you have proper pressure within the plant to continue for this transpiration to occur and have mass flow of nutrients. It's a whole system that works together. And it's, yeah, if it's, if one thing is looked at as, oh, this is where I need to focus, then I feel like sometimes like that. we miss the big picture. And a lot of times, even for myself, I find that I need to take a step back and slow down and not try and think about its big picture sometimes, because really, if you look at the plants, they're going to tell you what they need and, and then you can react with the environment. 100%. And especially if you have sensors or other data gathering instruments that can help lead you to decisions, that's an even better way to, to make those calls and adjustments preemptively before problems do arise. Cause sometimes I feel like reading the plants is just reading problems. So unless you like, <laughs> unless everything's going well, and then you're just like, oh, I'm good. And hopefully yeah, like, my methodologies are, are going to keep working because uh, <laughs> otherwise you're just looking until something changes or if you're following someone else's method, then you're just hoping, right? Yeah. And further on onto that, people always talk about it, but this kind of goes, it ties into an awesome question, but did you, have you ever grown under CMH or HPS lights? not like in a home grow or in a tent setting. So I like, I really don't have a lot of advice for people who do that. Yeah, it's, but even in commercial. It, crazy. But yeah, in commercial, I've grown in under CMH and HPS. And yeah. I notice a lot of people like to, they have a really hard time transitioning. And you said that so well with the whole thing, like it's a trick question. Because if I was to just upgrade my lights, and I didn't upgrade anything else and to say I switched from HPS to LED. I would probably not have the proper DHU or the proper AC requirements, or I might be overkilling it, way overkilling it on something. That's definitely something to talk about. How different is not just from an efficiency standards maybe, but from do you need a lot more DHU load just because of, if I'm going to switch to LEDs and I have, and we're talking more definitely doesn't have to be on a little tiny uh, tent. It could be a, a bigger room. 
But if I'm about to switch, what is something I'm going to expect that's going to be another added cost, maybe a hidden cost? Like I have to buy LEDs, but I also have to buy dehues. Yeah, I think that's probably it right there, because a lot of the times you're going to have adequate air conditioning, but maybe you won't have adequate heating. Hmm. So like you, you need to think about like with the HPS, right? It created so much far red spectrum that it increased the leaf surface temperature. And so what a lot of people, what cultivators were reacting to were leaf temperature changes rather than environmental temperature changes. And so they had to cool the environment to help lower the leaf surface temperature in order to increase the transpiration rates to get proper growth. At least that's how I've been explained it. I've never actually spent a lot of time around growing under HPS, but okay. it seems like a lot of the times when you switch from HPS E, you're going to need more dehumidification because you have an overall increased photon flux, like on the canopy. So you're going to have an in increase in transpiration. So you're just going to have an increase an overall humidity load that's going to need to be taken care of. So I'd say, yeah, there are hidden costs to it, but then you don't have to run as high of a wattage. So another thing to think like the overall amount of heat produced per watt of an LED light versus an HPS light is pretty much the same thing. So like it's, there's, you can do like a wattage to BTU calculation. And so yeah. if you're running a thousand watt LEDs and you're used to one run the same amount of fixtures of a thousand watt HPS, the only difference is your, the way that the LEDs produce heat and then disperse heat is going to be a little bit more spread out. So it's not as concentrated. So it can be more easily compensated for and, and wicked away through air conditioning and, and airflow. If that heat is being still produced like at canopy height, because a lot of people will run these LEDs really close to the canopy. You can still move that heat away from it because of the way that the heat disbursement is laid out on these bar style LEDs. And further into that, I love how you put in the height thing, because one, one question that we had from a viewer was, are under canopy lights worth it? Personally, I said, depending on the investment, no, there's really expensive ones out there. And there's also not so expensive ones out there. And if you're an at-home grower, I'd say just wait and get your craft first. But more on that is, this is more a question about maybe what your experience has been with things like the inverse square law, or is that a real statement to make in a grow room? That's a true thing because some people think the height matters and some people don't. And I think one of the biggest, one thing I definitely think is the reason why you see a lot more under canopy lighting is because people's canopies are so close to their lights. So of course, under canopy lighting is going to help because you're just giving more light to something that has barely any light. What's your opinion on that? Sure. So I think under canopy lighting, it's worth it in certain cases, right? One of the big things to think about when you're cultivating and you're trying to run in a business, so you have to do it for profit is you have to think about your total yield per square foot. And then you have to know how many times you can harvest a room per year. If you in can increase your yield per square foot by having a, a deeper canopy, right? The, your canopy is going to be typically if you have really well lit and properly maintained canopy in terms of removing leaves when needed and whatnot, you can get away with typically like 30 to 36 inches of canopy height 
in a well-maintained cultivation space that has like CO2 enrichment, but you typically prune all those lowers and depending on the cultivate or the cultivar and the cultivation style, you, the overall stretch of the plant, depending on where you veg it to might be, the, so your overall plant height might be greater than 36 inches. So you're going to lose those lower parts of the canopy because of just the overall light drop off, as well as how much that PPD can actually drive to drive that energy to the buds to produce solid dense buds. So if you can't provide enough light from above to provide enough energy to give you the density you require for the entire canopy height, then side lighting or inner canopy lighting is going to be your best bet to get light to those lower sites. And so mm -hmm. it does work and it's, if you're already at, if you already are maxing out your capabilities as a cultivator within your space, you're going to find that you're producing a lot of lowers that you're pruning away. And I so agree. if you can make those into something worth smoking and keeping, and it's not at a detriment in terms of, so if you're giving a thousand watts of LD of, or of light of any kind, and you produce X amount of bud, then okay. if you provide, and then, so you like calculate out like how much per watt, let's just say that it's one gram per watt. I, that's pretty low by today's standards, yeah. but let's just say Definitely. one gram per watt. And then you, but you prune away a bunch at the bottom and then you add another 30, 40 watts of lighting to that lower area and you produce another 30 or 40 grams, Gram. then it's just increasing your yield at the same cost per watt. So it's exactly, it's actually increasing your potential for yield throughout the year. And so yeah. your overall, like your overall overhead, let's say you spent X amount on your tent, then your overhead is going to be how much per grow is going to be how much you spent divided by how many times you grew per year. And then you can be like, and then I got this much out of each of those grows. And so that's how much I mitigated my overhead. And if you can produce more at the same cost per grow, cost per gram or whatever you want to look at it as, then you're going to reduce your overhead faster and it's going to be more worth it in the long run. Right? So if, so if your goal is to produce flour for you to smoke and you can only do so in a certain amount of space or with a specific amount of plants. Let's say you have a plant count and you need to maximize your yield from that in order to get the medicine you need, then providing more light will produce more medicine. And that's, it, yeah. It's that's true. What. I really liked your point about the height correlation because a lot of these, you're so spot on with that too, because when you said 36 inch plant, I'm like, yeah, if you have a 36 inch plant. You, if you put bottom lights or bottom canopy lights on those or under canopy lights, you're definitely going to see some type of difference. My statement is definitely more made, but I, I love the, your opinion about the stuff inside of the tent because you're 100% correct. If you can directly correlate an increase of yield with an increase of wattage, then that is, then you should do it. And I think for a lot of home growers, like you said, if you're already optimizing everything else, then getting on that train is going to be smart because you're going to be able to just produce more with a little bit more and you're going to be able to make your, that's it. Growing is a whole real estate game. It's all about, Hey, how much did I produce in this square foot of area, square foot of canopy? And if you can simply like you put it, produce a little bit more, 
then everybody gets paid a little bit more at the end of the year, or yeah. you have, like you said, have the potential to get paid I mean, a little it, bit more at the end of the year. You do have to consider that there is going to be a point of diminishing returns, right? If you're already getting at that one gram per watt yield, and then you add another 30 watts or whatever, right? And then you get only two more grams, then that may not be worth it because then you're reducing your overall yield per watt, right? Definitely. So if you can maintain your yield per watt or possibly increase it, then that's where you want to be okay with it. Or if you see still that your, your increase is worth it because of how much more that provides for you versus how much you're spending. It really is a, it has to be a personal decision, right? Because we all have however much we have to spend on our grow or to spend on our, if it's our hobby or whatever. So we have to Definitely. keep that in mind. I really like those. And that kind of correlates perfectly into the next one, which this is probably the most heavily debated thing. And we had a, had a conversation last time and had some good engagement about it. In your opinion, why are you a salt grower and why do you not grow in living soil indoors? So I do both. I have done both and I'll- Yeah, you've done your living do soil. Both. Okay. If it's in a controlled environment, indoor setting, and you're using energy that you're either purchasing or harvesting from whatever resource you're using, then you want to use it the most efficient way possible. And in terms of if you can control your runoff and make sure that you're repurposing any runoff that you have or remediating it, and as long as you're growing in a efficient way or in an efficient way, where yeah. you're making sure that everything that's going into it is being used adequately. And it can be debated if people are learning how to grow, is it being used efficiently to learn how to grow? Mm -hmm. And I guess, yes, in the sense of like education, but maybe not in the sense of yield or productivity, but that's each person's sort of goals and aspirations. And that's what's going to matter there. But it, if you're growing indoors, <laughs> the most efficient way, in my opinion, is going to be with salt-based hydroponics, just because of the the rate of growth you can get. And there are people that can grow organically really efficiently. And so I'm going to just, they can keep doing what they're doing. But I, I feel like in terms of the labor required and the, the knowledge required and the ease of use, I feel like you have to make a decision that's right for you. And so it, in my case, and in terms of like production for weight, for my own personal medicine, I feel like salt based hydroponic based growing is going to be the way that I'm going to go indoors, but outdoors, I'm always going to use organic based, mostly gearing toward Google culture beds and no till farming with making my local compost. compost. Yeah, yep. exactly. Yep. And that's, and over time they found in the science that literally, if you use the local things outdoor, your plants going to be healthier and it's going to be like. One thing I was, I love your opinion uh, on this because it's exactly runs the same as mine. Uh, but one other person that I think would agree with this statement is Dr. MJ Coco. I got a lot of, he is the one that kind of turned me on to growing salts isn't bad because you are making this efficient, really efficient box where we're just trying to make this box more efficient, basically. Yeah. Why, why are we not trying to do that? And when you're going outdoor, there is that you can have that. I think it's better. I think it's better for the plant. I think it's better for everything. But if you're indoor and you have everything perfectly going and you have a HEPA filter or, or a, 
a scrubber of some sort, and you don't have spores in your environment anyway, or a very minimal amount of spores in your environment, then you shouldn't have to worry about things like maybe bio, what are they, biostimulants or things like that, that you are going to have to maybe spray on your plant. A, a lot of people lately, and this is, goes ties perfectly to my next question is the use of silica, monosilicic acid or, and, or I think it's Agacil 16 or just potassium silica in, in any way. What, what's your opinion on those? I've used it before and it, it seems to do what it's claimed to do. Like it does provide silica is an essential nutrient for the plant. So it does provide that essential nutrient for cell structure and disease prevention. And I personally use like Agsil 16 for pH adjusting. If I need to alkalize my water, I'll use a dilute solution of that. I've never used power. I, I've used a monosilicic acid from, I think they're called Grow Genius. Yeah, they, you said that in the last one of Grow Genius, yeah. and they were. I looked them up, and guys, if you want a greatly priced monosilicic acid, go check out Grow Genius because, in my opinion, power size a little for especially for a home grower. And I know a lot of my viewers are home growers. Guys, it's a little hard on the pockets. You really yeah. gotta want it. Yeah, definitely. So, but I, I guess silica yeah, is a, it's a, it's something you can add. I, I don't personally use it right now. Now, do you use any micro products or anything like that? I've used Micro Plus from Bokashi Earthworks. Okay. And there's some down to earth powdered ones that I've, I've used in the past. No, not so much. Yeah. I'm, I like flip flop on how I do my home grow style in terms of sometimes I'll add a little bit of inoculation to the, mm -hmm. to the substrate at the beginning of the plant's life. Sometimes I won't. And honestly, I don't see much difference in growth. If, if I'm already growing with salt-based nutrients. So I don't really see the purpose in adding it. Maybe later in the cycle, you could possibly do something to help create some of those immune pathway responses in the plant. But it's, yeah, it, it just, I'm not really sure. I don't really have any tools to measure it. And I grow different cultivars all the time at home because I'm always hunting. So I'm just like, <laughs> is it really doing anything? I'm, I'm probably going to only run this once. So as I'm looking for stuff to either keep or to move on to other breeding projects or to just see what I'm looking for. It, simplification seems to be my path forward in terms of just trying to make sure that everything is grown to a certain standard so that it's not. So I feel, cause I feel like I'll, if I overdo something, I'm looking for that response that I'm trying to provoke. And if it doesn't, or if it does happen, I, I don't know, what am I measuring it with? I tell a lot of people to, especially that I think this will resonate with you a little bit is look at your ORP and opposite ORPs work similarly. So if somebody, if you have a hypochlorous acid product or something that can keep a very, it would be a high ORP, then I think you're not worrying about, you're not going to have to put trichoderma in your media because there's nothing in your media anyway, or whatever it is, it's pretty yep. suppressed due to how much and if you are properly using, that's another thing, guys, if you are using hypochlorous acid, make sure you're properly using that. There is a time that it does dissolve off. If you're using a big res, I had a problem last grow where I would put it in and seven days later, I would get some type of weird bioflow film. And that's because if your res is open and it's not like a jug that has a lid on it, then it will dissolve off into the air. That was one thing that I found personally, and you can't just up the dosage. So remember to stay on top of that. But microbes, I think, work the opposite way. If you're doing organic, then people say, oh, the 
microbe teas always work super well. And I think a big reason on that is that you're not, it's not just that you're giving all this life and this nutrient, this capability to basically release nutrients in your soil because you're not feeding any nutrients. It's things that are going to release nutrients further in their lives. But if you think about that, what that's doing and what the high ORP thing's doing, all it is a comfortable way of watering your plants. And I like this from, I heard it from a different podcast, but they said, you want a controllable root zone and whatever that is, if it's an organic in an organic sense, or if it's in a synthetic sense, I think that having a controllable root zone is the most important way to go, right? Or the most, the best way to go in my opinion. I can personally. definitely agree with that. I use hypochlorous acid in, in my grow at home and, and at work. And when I did organics at home and I did like indoor organics elsewhere, we would use like microbial inoculants or, or we'd use other sort of Bavaria bassiana or trichoderma or different things like that help take care of the bugs, the molds yeah. that we don't want. So it's a different it way. Can... You want healthy roots for sure. And, and so it, it does require a different ap approach if you're doing organic or synthetics. Yeah. And I just, I try to push, educate yourself for the viewers because there are a lot of companies that just tell you to use their product over and over because that that's what they controlled. That was their R&D testing that they said, sure. But if you're using eight products side by side and you're using them all at the max label limit, then guys, you're, all you're doing is draining your wallet. You're not growing more buds. And I think it's very important that especially just realizing that coming away. Oh, if I still use a recharge and I'm using hypochloric or hypochlorous acid there, why am I using recharge or vice versa? Why am I using the hypochlorous acid? Like they're basically just eliminating each other. And I, I think that's a huge thing. Earlier, you stated something. I, I put it down on my notepad here. Earlier, you stated something about, and this is something that is another thing that rattles the community. Should you defoliate? When do you defoliate? And most importantly, bro, for the people that don't defoliate, why do you defoliate? For me, I tell people one of the main reasons is airflow in a small, a very small area. It's going to be airflow, like you were stating earlier. But in your opinions, from a commercial standpoint, what are your you know, opinions on that? So I'll tackle it from both angles. From a, a personal standpoint, I defoliate when I need to reduce overall transpiration rate of the plant. So if, if it's, if the humidity in the tent is, or the growth space is, is spiking too high at night or something, and I don't have dehumidifiers running or something, then you can reduce the overall humidity by stripping some leaves off. Cause that's where you're going to have a lot of the transpiration from. And that's one way to look at it. You can use it for that. Then airflow just for environmental maintenance, making sure that you don't have pockets of humidity that are unable to be blown away with or replaced with fresh air. So there's those two sides of it. And I guess it, you, you then also have to think about it. What is your time constraints? How much, what's your overall workload look like for something like that? And how can you divide it up? How are your plants health wise? Do you need to slowly take a couple leaves here and there as they're either dying or as you're noticing lowered light to, to different areas? So you, I don't know, I guess it, it really depends on everyone's situation. I know that some people don't defoliate at all and some people will strip down to where there's no leaves basically. And one note. I yes. feel like 
both sides of those extremes might not necessarily be the best for the overall health of the plant. If you're in an outdoor setting and you're just growing one plant without a bunch like packed in closely together, then sure, like just leave it be. But if you're mm -hmm. growing like in a controlled environment where you're monitoring the environment and controlling the environment, then you can help even reduce your electricity in terms of the like dehumidification needs Very by, by reducing the amount of leaves. You can also reduce your need for humidification by leaving leaves. If your outside environment of the tent is extremely dry, like it, let's say you're growing in Colorado, right? And it's super dry. Then you want to lower your air exchange to just what you need and try and leave the humidity that the leaves are creating in there and use the heat from the light to BPD to where it needs to be for the proper growth stage. So it really depends, right? Yeah. Every single situation. I feel like one of the best things I can do is like offer to people be like, if you have a specific situation that you're having trouble with, I like to problem solve those things. So feel free to reach out, but it's really hard to give a, a silver bullet approach for environmental parameters, especially yeah. with when it comes to like leaf stripping or removing leaves. Yeah. It's very case dependent. I think that's one huge thing with the humidity. If you are going to, cause last grow, I did this as a test and I've never really done just one huge defoliation. And the test was that I was just going to do one humongous defoliation and I wasn't going to touch them again. Mm -hmm. The biggest thing I noticed was the change of environment. And like you said, it's probably not good for the plant. It doesn't matter if you could keep the environment exactly the same. You're also tearing off a bunch of photosynthesis, making like the actual sugar making parts of the plant. You're taking those away and throwing them out. And now the plant has to make more of those. But for me, it was, I lost, like you said, I had this amazing humid, everything was growing super vegetative or vegetatively and then chopped all that off and I needed humidification for it. And it was yeah. like, oh no. And I don't live in a dry climate. It was just, it was absolutely insane. And that really drove me nuts for a little bit. Now you stated in there, the parts about, in your opinion, for a person who's just starting out, would you say this was always my rule when I started out? And of course you, we all have a different opinions, but I always use the 30% rule. And I think a lot of people go on this with King's topping where they take the top two leaves and they tear them off so that the lowers can get more light or percent for me was always, if it looks 30% dead, if it's less than 30% healthy, then tear it off. And I don't know. What's your opinion on that? Yeah, absolutely. I think like what I say in like our cultivation facilities, we do the 50%, if, it, okay. if it's 50% dead, rip it off if it's uh, but we also have been like adjusting our pruning practices in terms of defoliation. So it really, yeah, it's dependent upon how you're growing. And so I'd say one thing that I, I know is controversial about removing leaves is people will say, oh, I'm opening up my bud sites to light. And there is, there is some controversy there that I guess could be touched on where the actual flowers themselves, depending on the bract structure is there's going to be uh, less chlorophyll in it so it's gonna actually have less photosynthetic potential so you're gonna actually if you can open up the bud sites because i feel like it is important for the bud sites to receive light because you do have different color production based on the light intensity and you can even see this with a shaded leaf so if you like have a plant that turns purple 
certain ones will turn purple and it's like a photosynthetic response. So you'll see that the leaf that overlaps another leaf where it overlapped, it won't have turned purple up to a certain stage in the sort of color change. And you'll see that there's still green pigmentation underneath where it was shaded out. And so sometimes if you're like, if you do have a, a, a cultivar that changes color, opening up the bud sites can help them change color a little bit better and a little more evenly. So it is, it's fascinating because it doesn't drive like photosynthesis in terms of producing more of the like photosynthates that the plant uses for all of its metabolic processes, but it does help in terms of it has a plant response that isn't necessarily photosynthetic. It's really fascinating. And so a lot of people will be like, oh, don't remove the leaves. You're opening up the bud sites and that's not actually doing anything to help with your yield. But it may actually help in terms of like terpene profiles because you're actually preventing specific wavelengths of the light by having the trichome glands there. So they're almost like sunscreen, right? If they are stimulated, outdoor cannabis is extremely pungent because they're constantly stimulated. So if you can stimulate them more, I've seen that they can be more, more smelly, more pungent, but it's really, I don't have a lot of, it's all anecdotal, right? I don't have any sort of scientific evidence to back that. It's only what I've witnessed. Have you ever used? Yeah, I've used UV. I thought it would do something for the plants, but I think that it more, I have, I was having trouble with humidity and it actually helps with spore reduction because you can UV to, to kill bacteria and molds. So I think it came more in handy with pathogen prevention than it did with terpene or cannabinoid increases. And I know that's a pretty heavily debated subject. Yeah, I've used it and I'll probably still use it in terms of if I do have some problem with mold or something, I'll probably, I have it in my veg tent now. So I use it as almost like a preventative measure. If I start to feel as though there is an increase in either mold or if there are like any bugs that I'm sensing, then I'll turn it on where it'll cycle. I think I do two or three 30 minute on cycles per lights on cycle. And that seems to help, but maybe also it's just my observation bias. But then also I do know that there is other horticultural industries that will use it for hardening off plants. So they'll increase UV lighting to the plants to help harden them off before bringing them outside because the UV light is one of the, at least that's what's reported is that the UV from the sun is one of the big things that causes the plants to have issues going from an indoor setting to an outdoor setting if they're not tempered correctly. Yeah, it, I guess there's uses for it, but I don't think it's the uses that are what people have said or claim them to be in certain cases. And then in other cases, I hear people claiming the same things that I'm saying right now. So I'm like, I think it's up in the air for debate still. Like, why not? Oh, okay. I, that's, like I said, huge debate. I wanted to bring it up there because I heard, I was like, man, got to get that in there. But I have a little new, this is something Giacomo I want to start. And it is just, again, you can pass, you can answer the question, but there's a few questions that we had that we wanted to ask you. And I don't want to say they're political, but they're definitely not really about cultivation. They're more about your opinion about where is the industry going? How is everything right now? And stuff like that. So the first one I wanted to talk about was, what do you think about the oversupply of cannabis on the market and that it's not as much demanded anymore by the the masses. Of course, new states are going online, but where I live, Michigan, it got hit so hard with this insane supply of pot. And now 
there's so many companies just going out of business because there's so much pot on the market. It's such a cheap price. I just think over licensing is an issue, but I feel it, that it does really get into political beliefs at some point there to try and steer clear of that. Yeah, I'll, definitely. I'll say that I think that, oh man, <laughs> I, I feel like allowing for people to open up the businesses that they want is important, especially if they have the capital to do like, why not? Who are we to stop them? If mm-hmm. they fail, let them fail though. I feel sales in terms of volume is still going up, but I feel like sales in terms of profitability is going down due to oversupply, but eventually it's going to sort itself out, right? People can't run a non-profitable business forever unless they have limited funds. And in which case, let them, why not? (laughs) Yeah. Um, And they're just just putting money on the market for everybody else too at that point. (laughs) Yeah. I don't want you to get too hardcore into it. That's Um, cool. I feel like it is oversupplied though. And I feel like. You got to vote with your wallet in this case and only buy the stuff that, you know, is coming from a good source or that is of high quality. But I do know that people want cheap bud at the highest percentage. There's something that's going to change, but I'm not really sure what we just had this. It's a proposal as of right now for the DEA to change the scheduling from schedule one to schedule three. Mm -hmm. And so schedule three wouldn't necessarily do much benefit in terms of making it more accessible, but could be handed over to big pharma and it could become less accessible. Home grow could become penalized. Just like it's not okay for you to have a home still and distill your own alcohol or have a chemistry set and create your own codeine or whatever. These are all things that are prevented. And so it would almost be like, hopefully that's not the way it's going to go. If it goes into the same category, add stuff where it's like Tylenol with codeine, then they're going to look at it as a, a prescription drug or a pharmaceutical possibly in it. That, that could definitely spell some problems for the community overall, but it's a wait and see game at this point. Yeah. I think there's a lot of learning. I think there's a lot of education to be done. I think that the government as well, again, trying to steer away from the political side of it though, the government is trying to stay away from it. Either government system is trying to stay away from it because the biggest thing is that everywhere is trying to learn what the heck is going on. And one thing that, and I think this is, I don't even need to ask about your opinion. This is just a fact at this point, the black market still prevails in terms of uh, marijuana sales. If you look at the percentages and stuff, I think a high reason of that and not to get political, but that's because a lot of states are still offline in terms of legalization. So it makes them still buy, want to buy pot. Their neighbor has pot. All right, let's go to, I'm in Wyoming. Let's go to Colorado. It's not like people don't want to enter the legal market and pay their taxes. I Mm -hmm. feel like there's a lot of people that I hear that they're just like, if I had the ability, I would pay taxes. I just, I can't operate within the law because they don't give me the opportunity. And so I feel like opportunity cost for a lot of these ventures is so great that it pushes a lot of people into a space where they have to operate the only way that they know. And that's within the illicit market because it's how our government has seen fit to categorize it. I like what you said there. Yeah. Within that market as much as many of these other people have. So I don't really want to speak on it from ignorance. Yeah. Yeah. I've definitely, I've, you sell weed in high school and you think you're a big drug dealer or something. And nowadays it's my mom got that from the dispensary. <laughs> it's such a crazy change of change of theater, especially I'm talking more in legal states, but like you said, I think you worded it perfectly and it states my opinion is that the problem is that the government still sees this as a super illicit drug that even a lot of places have a big problem with 
just being able to hand out, just being able to give checks to their employees and just being able to pay people. And then those people have problems buying houses or buying different things because you got money from a, a cannabis cafe. I don't know. It's crazy. Like you said, trying to stay away from politics, but a lot of people nowadays are getting louder and louder about their opinions. And in terms of that, what's your opinion about it? Or if you have one, if you've heard about the big kind of uprising in THCA weed, or it's a lot of people know there's a certain way to grow where you can only have high testings, THCA variants, and there's certain ways to just test it when you're harvesting, whether it is the harvest date or something like that. What's your opinion on THCA weed? THCA is just a tetrahydrocannabinolic acid. So it's just a mm -hmm. precursor to tetrahydrocannabinol, right? Mm -hmm. So it's in every cannabis plant. It's what you find in the raw material. It's, it converts once it's decarboxylated. So it's yeah. once it's smoked. So I, I'm not really sure I understand the question because I guess I'm getting at, again, I don't know about if you've heard a lot about it, but THCA is a legal loophole in the system right oh, now. Oh, I, I didn't know this. Okay. Yeah. So THCA, like Tennessee, Texas, shout out to our Texas viewers. And a lot of them DM us and they smoke THCA weed and they say it smokes the exact same way the exact Formal same terms and what? yeah exactly <laughs> it was more about trouble. yeah more about asking your opinion about how crazy all that stuff is again i didn't know if you heard anything but i heard oh. about it a couple friends got on my line giacomo and i talked about it and of course like what i say is it's really freaking risky but people you know, are it really doesn't necessarily paint the best picture for yeah what the community represents because if you're just trying to trick people if Basically. you're like huh you don't know what i know so i'm just going to use fancy wording to go around you then it's the exact same thing lobbyists and the government is doing in terms of limiting our rights in, yes. in certain instances i don't know i don't like wordplay like that i don't like mm -hmm. like chopping up words like that to make it so that it it benefits me over someone else that, 100%. that doesn't seem honest. 100%. And if we're not honest as a community when dealing with this stuff, then it gives more people reason to disbelieve us when we say that this is just a medicine and not a Schedule One narcotic next to heroin. It doesn't help with legitimacy in any ways. It, it undermines legitimacy, at any, if, if anything. Yeah. And that it goes straight to, and this is the last question I'll have, but how do you feel about interstate and or international commerce between cannabis? Not in, in a legal sense, not illegally, but in a legal sense, if that was something that was passed in the future, how would you feel about that? Great. If I, I feel like once it, if it becomes legal, why not? There's already countries that are open to it that are like Canada already exports to Germany. So there's already... So there's cross-Atlantic trade, their trade down to like places, I think like Mexico has a medical program now, but yeah. you could, yep. that's an easy way to, I don't know, like it seems almost silly to, to continue to control it in a way that prevents people from continuing Warm about like normal business, especially in terms of like banking regulations and stuff. It, there's so much that needs to change that it's almost, yeah, like interstate commerce would be great. International commerce would be great for it. It would help a lot of business people, business individuals, businesses that are in a position to operate like that, to just operate. There's already multi-state operators that are going to be ready for that when it comes online. And I mm -hmm. feel like they there's even places that have the acreage to do. It almost feels inevitable 
like once one wheel turns, it feels as though all of them will turn. So yeah, if it becomes legal or if it becomes scheduled to a point where, okay, I, I don't know about pharmaceuticals and how much we ship pharmaceuticals overseas, but I, mm -hmm. I think we do. <laughs> we do. Well, yeah. I'm not going to claim to be an authority on that, but if it's in a similar category to that, then it would be, it would only make sense in terms of a capitalistic mindset to continue down that path. It, I was listening it wouldn't to make sense otherwise for companies to just be like, here's an option to make more money at the same operating cost you're already working at. How would you like that? And then just go, nah, I'm, I'm good. I, I just don't see that happening with a lot of people the way that people are. Uh, yeah, exactly. And I, I think it's called the Real Dirt podcast I was listening to. And I don't even know if they meant this to sound this way, but I really agreed with what they said is that the cannabis market at some point, they would like it to see it like the flower market with Amsterdam, how Amsterdam leads because of their economical success with, however, you can go down the street and you can find a nursery and you can get some flowers from that nursery. We don't have to have every grow be a mega grow, but everybody likes some local flower. Everybody likes a local product. And there's a reason why, and in the same statement, this is what this person was saying, you know, not verbatim, it's all paraphrased, but there's a reason why Coors has and, and Bud Light and all these, and I don't like making the correlation between alcohol companies, but there's a reason why there's just one big Coors facility. And then they have different bottling and distributing plants. It's not about having you like be efficient where you can be efficient. We shouldn't have a Coors plan in every single state. Sure. Yeah. It really depends. I and that's the thing is, and, but I don't agree with that. The need for there to be one centralized thing like that. If opening up the market for people to participate in rather than closing yes. it off for viewer to participate yes. in, I feel is where I would like to see things lean towards, but yes, also again, like the people then operating in, in that market need to really do what's right for their customers and vote with our dollar. And then we get a product hopefully that is of quality like, i prefer though honestly like i and this is so funny because i operate in a commercial space for a living but i'll ultimately vote that like self-sufficiency in terms of growing your own is where you need to think and what you mm -hmm. need to try and do and podcasts like this and others where they help home growers learn and grow it's super important because a lot of these practices can transition into other food production, other styles of sufficiency and self-reliance that you may not like realize are available to you. Like cannabis seeds are ridiculously expensive and I'm not going to say like, I'm not participating in making seeds and trying to sell them for profit because mm -hmm. that's what I'd love that to be a profession that I could do full time. That's far away from now, but, but <laughs> other seeds it uh, can happen. Sure. Yeah, maybe. I'm telling you. But like uh, tomato seeds or squash seeds or cucumber seeds, these are all very inexpensive and you can use a similar grow setup. You just have to learn the cycles of these other plants, just as cannabis has its cycle, right? You can yep. learn the other cycles of these plants and grow them indoors too. If you don't have a, if you're uh, living in an apartment, like a lot of Americans, uh, younger Americans too, are living in apartments or maybe yep. they're living in a, uh, in-law unit at their family's house or whatever it may be. 
you may have a small space and let's say you grow one cycle of cannabis and you have enough cannabis for a bit. And then you're like, I don't need to grow in there. Maybe you can grow some lettuces or something. That's also an option. And I feel like it's less looked upon. Oh, I got this kick-ass grow tent environment system. And now I'm going to just grow a shit ton of cannabis. And I'm guilty of that because I grow more than I can smoke. And so I give a lot away. So it's like, uh, it is fun though. Yeah. And that's, I think I, I love, that's a perfect way to end the podcast is, is stating it like that self-sufficiency reigns supreme. The reason I think cannabis was the gateway drug for me in terms of self-sufficiency, wanting to learn how to grow, making my garden outside. I had an indoor garden before I had an outdoor garden and that's okay. You don't have to be a gardener pro before you go outside. Anybody can do it. And it's really, like you said, it's about the passion and the fun. I want to thank you for doing that little industry kind of questionnaire thing. I think that was a lot of fun and, and it had a lot of amazing opinions on it. Yeah. Again, man, I, I just want to thank you for coming on and giving us another chunk of your time today. I really appreciate it. I had so much fun and you probably see, I thought we were going right over an hour and I was like, dang, shoot, I wanted to do this like whatever this industry thing was at 40 minutes. So it just shows how much we can get into talking and stuff. And I appreciate you, man. Yeah, absolutely. I'm happy to come back on and happy to answer questions. And I do really enjoy helping other growers learn how to grow at home. And I think that's really the most important thing that at least I'm aiming for is I'm breeding to try and create these seeds, provide them at a fair price for people so that they can grow them at home. And hopefully they're fire. Like I'm not going to release unless I think that it's fire and I smoke it and I like it. And then just providing the information for people to grow at home was very easy. It's there a lot of the mistakes people make come from overthinking the situation and from not being present and from being elsewhere in their life and their mind. And I know that happens to me. So I feel like, yeah, definitely get to growing at home if you can. And if you need help, always feel free to reach out. Usually you'll find some good people and they'll be willing to help you. Yeah. Give your plugs out, give your seed company, right. And then oh, get- sure. I'm- I'm Mr. Wolf Grows on Instagram. I am shadow banned most of the time. So you have You're to type the whole out. name is it's Mr. Wolf, W-O-L-F-E, Grows, G-R-O-W-S. And then I also have Anthos Genetics and that's A-N-T-H-O-S underscore genetics. Yeah, that's where you'll find me. And yeah, I'm pretty active on Instagram and try to stay active on Reddit every once in a while just to see how the community develops in terms of home growers. The commercial space is a whole nother beast and it's a different mindset to, to understand where that one's heading. So I feel like home grow is the best thing to keep up with right now for where it's developing on the home front and how people are seeing this plant for what it is. Definitely. And guys, if you want to hear more about his past and how he's gotten to the point that he's at, I definitely recommend you to go check out the first one we did with Nick Wolf. And yeah, I appreciate everybody for coming through today, listening to the podcast. I appreciate Nick Wolf again, and we will talk to you guys in the next one. Grower love. Peace.